All right, everybody, we're in Revelation chapter 21. Go ahead and open your Bibles there. We're going to start at the top of the chapter. I think we covered like the first verse and a half or so last week, but we'll just start at the top of the chapter and get the full picture uh, without having to double back too much. So we'll open up Revelation 21 verse 1 and hopefully cover the whole chapter here this evening. Uh, We have two chapters left, this one and the last one, Revelation 22, and then we're done. Lord willing, we'll be done next, next Wednesday. That would be great. That's my plan, at least. If we have to spill over a little bit, I would hate that, but it's okay. It's, it's all, you know, I got, I got the room booked, so it'll be all right. We'll, we'll be here for the next, you know, several weeks, so it's okay. But I'd hope to finish it next week. Um, all right, so let's just dive right into where we left off last week, which was um, Revelation 21.1. Let's just rehash that text. Look at 21.1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We talked about this last week, but just to recover it, the phrase, that figure of speech, new heaven and new earth, or new heavens, plural, and new earth, singular. Your Bible may phrase it slightly differently here or there, but I'm pretty sure uh, we did a poll last week, and everybody's Bible basically says the same thing there, new heavens, new earth, new heaven, new earth. It is just an old figure of speech. Uh, in ancient writing that just means it's very intentionally vague in its, in its core meaning so that it could be applied and used in different ways. And it just basically means I saw something brand new. I saw the turning of a page. I saw the dawn of a new day. I saw the start of a new era. I saw something that was different from what I've seen up to this point. We're starting over. We're seeing something fresh. We're seeing something new. It's a new heavens sky, a new earth ground. It's a new day. Uh, is all that phrase simply means. So you have to put it in its context to see how to use it. For example, Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 uses that exact same phrase to describe the era of the Messiah to come. Peter uses it in his writing to talk about the post-judgment existence, life after death, life after the end of all things, uh, essentially. So how is it used here? Well, if we go through the text, we'll see exactly how it's used here. So look at some clues, first of all, in this very first verse. I saw a new heaven and new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Which means the first heaven and first earth being passed away was something we've already read about. It was the entirety of the text leading up to this chapter, which is that progressive period of judgment and retribution and vengeance of God being carried out. Where you had, especially at the tail end of the last chapter, where we covered last week, you had the, 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 the ground, the grave, spitting forth its, its occupants. You had the sea, the nations of the world, spitting out all of its people. Everybody, in other words, from everywhere, standing before God to be judged by God and to be placed in one uh, eternal destination or another. All of that is taking place in chapter 20 and so forth. And all of that, after it's done, the whole board is wiped clean. And there's no more worrying about sin. There's no more worrying about temptation. <clears throat> You're going to have to forgive me. I have sinus problems. I have allergies, so I'm a little scratchy. There's no more worrying about sin. There's no more worrying about temptation. There's no more worrying about all those terrible things. All that of the old life is passed away. So it makes perfect sense why John would then follow up by saying, with the old passed away, now I see something new. The old day is done. Now a new day is dawned. And that's all we're reading in verse number one. I saw new heavens and new earth because the first was done away with. The first sky and ground is history, and there was no more sea. The sea in this context from the previous chapter is the occupants of the world, the whole of humanity spitting out its its occupants uh, to be judged by God. There's no more sinful population. They've been judged, they've been condemned, they've been sent to hell forevermore. In fact, from here to the end of the book, there is no more reference to the devil, There is no more reference to the threat of the devil or to the workers of evil against the church of Christ. There is nothing else to be said about the persecution, about the trials and tribulations and hardships, other than the occasional references to, and look how great it is that it's not here anymore. Those kind of phrases, that's all you get anymore. You don't, get, you don't read anymore, just hang on in spite of this. You don't read anymore, just hold on in spite of that. You don't read anymore, here's who's doing this to you. All those kind of phrases are from yesterday. Yesterday's over. Today, Jesus has come. Today is a new day. Today, we're glorified. And that's what this chapter is all about. Look at verse number two. And I, John, saw the holy city. Now, if you put a period right there, if you stop right there, everyone reading this text knows exactly what that is. Oh, the holy city, that's Jerusalem. And John says, I saw the holy city, but this is a new day. This is a new heaven, a new earth. I saw the holy city, and it was a new Jerusalem. I didn't see... Old Jerusalem, John says. 
I didn't go to physical Canaan's land. I didn't cross the physical Mediterranean Sea. I didn't walk on the physical land. I didn't go up the physical Mount Moriah. I didn't see physical old Jerusalem where the old people of God dwelled. I saw new Jerusalem. And it wasn't on the ground. It was, look at the verse, coming down from God out of heaven. Now, it may just be semantics. It may just be uh, me being nitpicky. But, and I said this last week, I think it was the last thing I said before we stopped. Revelation 21 is not talking about heaven, all right? Revelation 21 is talking about the church glorified in heaven. And you can say, well, that's splitting hairs, fine. I have no hairs to split, so I, let me split these, okay? This is the church glorified in heaven. You are seeing a picture of your spiritual existence and what your existence now will be like when you don't have to worry about sin and temptation and the devil anymore okay I say that to keep you in the present moment and not just always looking for somewhere over the rainbow not just always looking for something beyond the vast horizon not just looking beyond the farthest star not just looking for something in the future but put yourself in the present right now and see your trials and your tribulations right now and then recognize that yes they are hard right now but even right now they can only affect me physically if I let them, they can affect me spiritually. But I don't have to let them affect me spiritually. I don't have to yield to temptation. I don't have to give in to the devil. I can stay faithful to Christ. I can resist. I can endure. I can be faithful unto death, Revelation 2.10. I can do those things now, and I can resist the devil now. What I'm reading here is what it will be like to live in the now without having to worry about all of that. Okay? Because I am right now part of this spiritual city. It's just I'm living on earth, the old, the yesterday. This is living in the same spiritual city I'm living in now, tomorrow. A new dawn, a new day, a new tomorrow, a new heavens and earth for this new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is coming from God out of heaven. It ain't heaven if it's coming out of heaven. Coming from God out of heaven. And it looks like a bride dressed up on her wedding day, adorned for her husband. This is something that's come up earlier in this book, and it's going to come up to play throughout this last part of the, t the, uh, the, the text of Revelation as well. This idea of uh, Revelation builds and builds and builds to this final section of a wedding. And it's not a, a modern, our kind of wedding, not a Western culture wedding where you have the engagement at last six months or six years, depending on how cold your feet are, until finally you have the day and there's a song and they, they play canon and D and the woman walks down the aisle and they do the veil, you say the vows, you give the kiss. You know, you've been there, you've been to a wedding. That's our wedding. You're, you bang, boom, you're done in three hours if you're lucky. If the preacher talks quick, you're done in two, right? That's the goal. This is not that kind of wedding. This kind of wedding was a week-long affair. And you had to give so many cows, depending on how beautiful the bride was, to the, to the father, you know. You had, to, you had to have the big lavish feast with all your friends. There was, it, was, it was just a big, gigantic ceremony, big, long process. And that's the way it's described for you here. There's a wedding feast, after which comes the ceremony. And that's what we're going to read as we look through the text. But it starts with seeing the bride dressed up in all her radiant glory. The bride, the bride being the church, who is the bride of Christ. Verse 3. Again, again, just one more time, just to double down, just to triple down on it. This is the church, not heaven, because the church is the city of God's people. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. These are all the metaphors John's giving you, which we already know refer to the church. Anywho, verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Here is the Jerusalem of God's new people. Here is the place of residence for God to live with his people. Summarize that in a word. Here is the tabernacle. Does your Bible say tabernacle? Okay, good. There's, there's tabernacle, the verb, and there's tabernacle, the noun. And both are used in this verse. Look at verse number three again. Here's how my Bible says it. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. It's two different words in the translation, but it's the same word, just used in a verb form or in a, a noun form. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will tabernacle with them. That's the idea. Behold is the place where you and God can live in peace and harmony forever, and he will live with you in peace and harmony 
forever. It's a double phrase, but it means it's, it's this idea of the place where it is and what you do there. It's this place exclusive to your fellowship with God, and it's there and only therein where fellowship with God is found. So again, verse 3. I heard this great voice out of heaven saying, look, here the city just came out of heaven. Look at it. This is the dwelling place. Here is the tabernacle of God. It is now with men. Which men in particular? The only men that are left. The people who get to go in. Everyone else has been cast away. It's for the faithful of God to endure, to live in forever. It's with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. It's just taking the, 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 the metaphor. It's just taking the idea that you found throughout the Old Testament of I will be their God and they will be my people and they'll be my nation and they'll be called by the name that I give them and they'll follow my law and they'll, they'll keep my covenant. That's God with Israel, the Old Testament. But it was very physical. It was very earthly. It was very grounded. The covenants was, were, were physical. You had physical circumcision and physical law keeping and a physical actual dwelling place. You had to go trek to Jerusalem three times a year and so forth. But this is spiritual. This is grander. This is open for all, not just one ethnicity of people in one location on earth. We'll see that as we go through it. So what about this city and the people who reside therein? Look at verse 4. God shall, my Bible says, wipe away all tears from their eyes. We sing the song, no tears in heaven, no sorrows given. No tears in heaven. This verse says he will wipe away the tears. There will be tears in eternal bliss, but those tears will be wiped away. Now, maybe you can argue if you want to quibble, if you want to split an eyebrow, you can quibble and you could say, well, you'll cry the one time, then it'll wipe them away. Fine, but let's, there's no need to go that deep in the metaphor. Let's stay with John's point, okay? His point is very obvious. Your sorrow is no more. Your reason for sorrowing is no more. Your per the, the reason why there is sorrow is because of sin and death. And, and the tragedy that comes as a result of them. Well, sin and death have been taken away. Remember the last chapter when God literally threw the concept of sin and death itself? Not just sinners and dead people, but sin the notion and death the notion. He threw them in the lake of fire. So there is no more sin, there is no more death, so why would there be any more sorrow? Look, that's what it says next. There's, wipes the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, the word means sadness, nor crying. In fact, that word crying in my Bible... It means outcry. It means the wail of despondency. When you have no words to express how sorrowful you are and how sad you are, that you just, you just, just make a, just a guttural explosion of noise. That kind of just pain, outcrying. That's all gone. Neither that kind of outcrying. Neither shall there be any more pain because those are all the former things. That's the way life used to be. You used to live on this planet. You used to live on this physical world where people literally hurt you and you literally shed tears. But you don't live in a place where you can be hurt anymore. So there's no opportunity for tears anymore. Just not to, not to answer a question that I'll get to in the Q&A section that's coming up in the next couple of months. But one of those questions that comes right out of this, so we might as well cover it here, is um, uh, what, what, if I, what if I blow it in heaven? What if, what if I do something wrong? You know, what if I step on a duck and I get kicked out of heaven? Is that going to happen to me? Can I, can I ruin it when I get there? And that worry that people have. You have to remember the idea of blowing it. The idea of making a mistake comes because you are seduced and tempted by the devil. If you take away the opportunity, then there's no possibility. And that's not a removal of free will. Can anybody here, does anybody here have a bazooka? No. Then can you shoot me with a bazooka? No. Now, you have the free will, perhaps, sure, but you have no opportunity right now. I assume nobody here has an actual bazooka, right? Jeff, no? Okay, all right. So then you have, you have, the, I have taken your bazooka away, so how can you shoot me with a bazooka? God has taken away your, your opportunity to be tempted, so how can you sin, right? That's how sin comes. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. James gives the definition. So he takes away the means and the opportunity, therefore there's no possibility. It's not about free will, it's about motive and opportunity. And that's, that's what you're reading here. How can I be sad when the, when the reason for sadness is taken away? Right? Verse 5. And he that sat on the throne said, quote, Behold, I make all things new. End quote. And he said unto me, quote, Write. For these words are faithful and true. What is he going to write? That's the next verse. But hang on, stay in this verse 5. Who sits on the throne? 
In Revelation, God. Not specifically, not Jesus. Like you can make a case and you can, you can tell me all you want. Well, Jesus is the king. He sits on the throne. You can give me verses and they're all true. But in the Revelation, in the apocalypse, in the vision, God sits on the throne. The Father is the one that's sitting on the throne. Okay? And he that sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. That is him taking credit for verse 1. I saw a brand new scene and a new city coming out of a brand new scene. And God says, that was my doing. I'm the one who's making all these things new. I'm the one who's flushing away all the bad of the old. Now write these words, John, because these words are true and faithful. These words are right, and these are words you can live on. These are words that won't let you down. They are, they are uh, laced with promise, filled with, with promise. So you take them now while you're struggling now, because in the future... They won't let you down. They're true and faithful. What are the words? Verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. There are three clauses, three phrases to identify and make note of in this verse. The first one, God says, it is done. What's done? Chapters 1 through 21, 5. Everything that you've just read really 1 through 20, all that you have read about when you're, when you're following the narrative of the book and you get to this point, when you, when, you, when you actually get to this point in life, you can know we're done. I don't have to worry about the devil anymore. I don't have to worry about sin anymore. I don't have to worry about hardship anymore. All that is history. It's past. It's gone. There's no more of this. I put down the beast and I thought he was dead, but lo and behold, he came back for more. No, that's, that's gone. The beast has been chucked into the fire. He's been locked. The key's been thrown away. It is done. Rome has been toppled. The devil has been defeated. Sin has been removed. The grave is no more. The gates of glory are open. It is done. Number two, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Alpha, Omega, you know the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's just a way of saying what the next phrase is, beginning and the end. I am he who has always been. I am he who is. I am he who ever shall be. What this is, is God telling you, what right does he have to tell me it is done? How can I, how can I know when he says it's done that it's done? Because I can tell you it's all over. I, we can have an earthquake and I can say, okay, I think it's over. How do I know? I don't know. I'm not the earthquake man. How do I know when the earthquake's not going to earthquake might come right back? There might be another earthquake. I don't know. But if God tells you it's done, it's done. I am Alpha and Omega. I've already seen the beginning. I am beginning and end. I've already seen when it's over. If I tell you it's done, it's done. This is God's credentials. Is giving you here last phrase i will give unto him that is a thirst i'll give to him that is thirsty parched in desperate need of the water the fountain of the water of life freely mind you it's not just the one who is in desperate need because we're all in desperate need it's the one who has scratched and clawed and fought and strove and climbed up the hill to get what he needs all, a lot of people are in need a lot of people are lying to themselves about it saying they're not in need but those who know they're in need and who are willing to get on their knees to crawl to get the water they will receive the fountain of the water of life. Jesus promised this to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus promised this to the people celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. To those who are thirsty, I'll give to drink of the fountain of the water of life, the wellspring of salvation that flows and outpours forevermore. Who gets to receive that? Who gets to enjoy that? It's these people who belong to this holy city. It's these people who are the overcomers. It's these people not those who've been already cast into a place of burning fire and perpetual thirst. It's a wellspring of glory, a fountain of the water of life. By the way, it's a fountain of the water of life freely. We'll come back to that word in a second. Verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, <coughs> excuse me, and he will be my son. In Revelation, God's the one on the throne here. Yes, Jesus is forever he's described that way earlier in this book but when god's on the throne it's the father on the throne it's the father who takes that that overarching ultimate patriarchal role and he says here verse seven he that overcomes in the yesterday in the before time in the hardship time will inherit all things in the tomorrow in the forever in the peace land and i will be his god and he will be my child first john 3 1 it's it's just it's just a summary of the promise God made to ancient Israel. And that's what you're reading here. It's just a spiritual equivalent to that. He told ancient Israel at the foot of Sinai, here's the deal. You follow the covenant, I'll be your God. You keep the law, you'll be my people. Break the law, I don't know you. Right? You start telling people you don't know me, 
get ready for the plagues I gave to Egypt. Ten times worse, right? And the nations coming in and the torture and the suffering and all that. All the things that they experienced in Judges and so forth. That, that was the deal. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. It's as simple to put as that could be. We'll have a relationship, we'll have a connection that you can have with me that no one else can have. All those other nations will have all their pagan gods and they'll pray to their pagan gods and they'll worship their pagan gods and when push comes to shove, you'll slaughter their pagan gods if I give you permission to. But if you turn away from me, I will be as unhelpful to you as their pagan gods are to them. So the ball's in your court. I'll be your God if you'll be my people. Well, now here he extends that same invitation to this spiritual Israel, this new Jerusalem, this holy people that belong to all, all those who have obeyed God, Jew or Gentile. Now, who, does that, who is that? Or in this case, look at verse 8. Who is that not? Who are we not talking about? Verse 8. We're not talking about the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars. You may have a different word or two in there in the translation, but we'll come there in a second. Those people will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. They'll enjoy the second death. So who goes to hell? Who, who endures that? The fearful go to hell. Those too afraid of the terrors of this world, that they didn't set their eyes on Jesus, they'll suffer a worse nightmare to come. The unbelieving go to hell. Those who reject the commands of God, because that's how God defines unbelief. It's not just, I don't think he exists. It's, I refuse to obey what he says. It's a much more specific kind of sin. Lots of people believe Jesus exists, and they don't obey him. They're unbelievers in the mind of God. An unbeliever is someone who doesn't obey. That's the end of John chapter 3. The abominable go to hell. Those that do acts of evil that are repulsive to God. Those who commit works of abomination. The murderers go to hell. Wait, does that mean murder is not an abominable act? No, it is. It's just, that's a catch-all word. Here's a specific word. The murderers go to hell. Those that take a life instead of sacrificing their own. Who have no regard for soul or body or the creation of God. So they, they, they kill. That's an affront to godliness. They go to hell. The whoremongers go to hell. Those who use their body for sinful pleasure and not for doing the good works of God. Those who make the marriage bed a defiled thing instead of an undefiled thing. Hebrews 13. They go to hell. The sorcerers go to hell. Those who practice witchcraft and paganism, those who check their horoscope, not to laugh at it, like in the Weird Al song, but who seriously believe that what the position of Venus is will tell them what they're going to do today instead of just getting out of their own beds and doing it today. Those people will go to hell who rely on that instead of the Word of God for guidance. Idolaters will go, boy, a lot of people are going to hell. It's really negative. It's really, it's really mean. No, it's just what the Bible says. I didn't write the book. Don't look at me like that. Lots of people are going to hell because lots of people refuse to obey God who's given them the pathway to heaven. It's not my fault. Idolaters go to hell. Those who place anything above God. A golden statue on the shelf will send you to hell. A little red Corvette could send you to hell. Your job could send you to hell. Your boyfriend could send you to hell. Your wife could send you to hell. Anything that you put above God becomes your God. You can become your God. That's what a humanist is. I am the top of the food chain. All liars go to hell. Anyone who makes deception their philosophy. This is another question we're going to get in the Q&A time. Um, is, is every lie a sin? And we have to, as with almost every question we're going to have, we have to first define our terms. What do you mean when you say this? What do you mean when you say that? Um, because if someone tells me, can you come over because my, well, no one's going to ask me to come fix something for them. Let's just pretend. Let's just, this will be, be fun. Let's just pretend someone invited me over to their house to fix their sink. Okay, they didn't know any better. So I come over there to fix their sink, and lo and behold, their sink is fine. It's a birthday surprise party. Well, they lied to me. Are they going to go to hell? If they are, it's for stupidity for thinking I could fix their sink. It, no, no, I don't think so, because that's not, that's not this kind of deception. This is the kind of selfish deception for their own personal gain, to harm someone else, not to surprise them with a balloon. I think distinctions need to be made. I think God's smart enough to make those distinctions too. So those kind of liars, the manipulating liars, the deceitful liars for their own purposes, those kind of people. Look, you, if it walks like a duck, you know what this kind of liar is. Those are the ones who will go to hell. Those kind of people will be expelled from the presence of God. And it's not just that list and no others. That's why you have there in the middle of it anyone who does an abominable act. Who defines what is abominable? The one who finds it offensive, and that's God. 
So if he says it's offensive, if he says it is wrong, if it's an affront to his glory, you ought not do it. And they will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, and they will experience the second death. We've had this phrase a few times, and I just want to give it one more quick bit of attention, okay? All of us who are present here have enjoyed, unless you're pregnant right now, have enjoyed the first birth. Birth, okay? Let's assume... Jesus doesn't come back until we're all dead, just for convenience, okay? Then we will all assume, uh, experience the first death, all right? A Christian is going to be different from a person who is lost and will forever be lost. Let's say they don't ever become a Christian. A Christian will experience the um, first resurrection, yeah, okay? And that being lots of colors tonight. They had a first burial. That first burial was baptism, Romans chapter 6. They're baptized and they're raised to walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6. So they were all, we've all been born physically, but these have been born again, John chapter 3, born spiritually. And now these new spiritual born people will continue to live and they will experience a physical death. But spiritually, they are living a second life. They are living a new spiritual life, one which will never end. It will forever perpetually go on and on, right? That's why Paul is so confident, singing to his grave, saying, I'm ready to leave this world, even though I'm going to cut off your head, Paul, 2 Timothy 4. Yeah, but I'm okay with that, because I've already been born again. I've already died and been buried physically or spiritually. So what you do to my body doesn't matter. Now I'm living a new spiritual, greater life, okay? But here's this lost person on the purple line. This lost person's never experienced that. He's just living along. He's going to die. And he's going to be purple. He's going to be buried. And then he's going to go before God and be judged. And he's going to be cast through a lake of fire. He's going to be separated from God. Because what is death but a separation? He's going to experience the second death. You never find in Revelation or in any other text, keep dropping markers, you never find a reference to the second death being said of Christians because you don't get a second death. You're not going to be eternally separated from God. Your, your soul will be separated from its body if you die physically, and you can call that a first death, but your soul will never be separated from the God who made it because you're a Christian. You don't get that second death. A lost person's soul will be separated from its body. That's his first death, and then he'll go and be judged, and he'll be cast into a lake of fire. That's the second death. He'll die again. So we're all going to have this one, assuming all of us will have this one, some of us will have this one, and some of us will have this one. That's a sheep or a goat, depending on who you are. Does that make sense? That may be more convoluted than this, but that's what it says. That's the second death, the separation of God forevermore of those who do abominable works. Now look at verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. Remember them? They had the seven bowls. They were pouring out their plagues upon Rome. That was like the last big series of punishments doled out before we got to this big grand finale that we started several chapters ago. So one of those angels now meanders over to John, and he says, come here, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So you have in verse 1 and 2, basically, John saying, now I see a new heaven and a new earth, and I see the, the city of God, the new city of God coming out of heaven. And it's, it's radiant, it's spectacular, but he hasn't gotten a good look at it yet. And then before he can get a good look at it, you get this segue from verses 3 through 8 where God says, write this down. This is important. Before you read it or say anything else, write this down. Here are the people who don't get to go here. Here are the people who have to suffer the second death and don't get to enjoy this, this glorified domain forevermore. Now, once you've written that down, now, come on, come into the city and take a good look. And I'll show you what it looks like, and you can write it down for everyone else. Why this angel is that tour guide, I don't know. Of all the angels that could have been, just, it's randomly one of those seven who poured out seven bowls. Maybe there's just always just been ten angels in the whole book and they're just rotating, doing different jobs. Or this just that was the one who was closest or God just randomly chose. I don't know. Ask him when you get there. But this one angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. From our perspective, okay, this is as simple as saying, come here, I will show you what the afterlife looks like. Okay? From God's perspective, this is God saying, come here, I will show you what life is like as I see it. This is how God wants us to live right now. This is what God sees when he sees the church. What do I see when I see the church? I see you people, okay? And you see me. And I see all of your struggles, 
and you see all of my struggles. And when I see the church, I see the way the devil is hurting the church. And I see our trials and our collective hardships and our struggles. And I see those who've fallen away and I see those who come back. I see all of that ebb and flow, all the tears of happiness and sadness. I see all of that. When God sees the church, he sees something that is pure. He sees something that is radiant. He sees something that is beautiful. He sees something that is perfect. It's hard for me to see perfection when I look at the church because it's filled with imperfect people. Me. And a bunch of you as well, I'm sure. I don't want to speak for you, but I'll speak for me. Imperfect, okay? So if I'm imperfect, I'm at least a drop of oil, a drop of ink, diluting the whole bucket of water. So at least I'm imperfect, so I can say that. When I look at the church, when I look at it, I see an imperfect thing, even though I shouldn't. I can't help but see that. When God sees it, he sees what it ought to be. He sees it glorified. He sees it what it will look like when we don't have to worry about sin and temptation, adding ink to the bucket. See what I mean? That's why I'm saying this is not heaven. Don't just make this tomorrow. Make this today perfected tomorrow. Okay? Verse 10. So I'll show you. All right? Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit, a vision, to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now, if you stop there, you think that's old Jerusalem. He went up to Mount Moriah. He looked over all around. But no, that's not it. I'll show you the great city, the holy Jerusalem, the one that descended out of heaven from God. Let me show you the spiritual domain of God's people. A spiritual city, not built with human hands. Jerusalem of old was established by the Jebusites and taken by David. This is, this is the Jerusalem of God, built with divine hands. Verse 11, having the glory of God, the city did, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even to a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, obviously, if you like, in, in our modern 21st century world, if you're approaching a city from far away, you can see the lights of the city from far away. You know, you're driving into Memphis at night, you can see the, the M bridge, you know, as you're coming into it. Or just coming into any kind of a city, you can see kind of the, the bloom of the street lights and things like that. But you still had a similar effect in an old city like that before electricity and things like that because they were burning torches and they had things that surrounded the walls and outside the cities and so forth. So you would still know as you were approaching, you know, on your camel or whatever, your donkey as you're ro rolling into town, not rolling, clopping into town, you could still see the lights of the city and know you're approaching a settlement. You'd know you're approaching a city. The more lights, the bigger it is. So here's John saying, I'm looking at this city and I'm seeing the glow of it and the radiance of it, and it's beyond just a few torches. It's bigger than just some house lights, some candles. This is radiating with the glory of God. And her light is like looking at a stone most precious to hold up a perfect gemstone, a diamond or whatever in the light, and just see it just sparkling. It was like that times infinity, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, no impurities to be found. Verse 12, and it had a wall great and high, and it had 12 gates, and at the gates it had 12 angels, so one angel per gate, and the names written thereon, the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And if you remember going way back in this book, like chapter 8 or something, maybe 9, Earlier in this book, we were given a list of the 12 tribes that were that are talked about in this book and how they don't line up and they don't fit together because there are not just 12 tribes. There's 13 and pl plots of land, 12, but 13 or 14 or however you can break it up in different ways, um, depending on if you have Joshua, Ephraim, and Manasseh, or just Ephraim, and Manasseh, or just Joshua. You know, there's all kinds of different ways and how that listing that was given to you in Revelation doesn't add up like Joshua is listed and Ephraim, but not Manasseh or something like that, it doesn't quite match. It doesn't quite fit. It's, it's intentionally left um, obfuscated. So you cannot just say, okay, look, this fits exactly how Israel was at this time because you're not supposed to see it as physical Israel. It's a representation of Israel. You're supposed to think, oh, what is Israel in a, in a spiritual sense? Israel is the people of God. The 12 tribes is the people of God. The church is the people of God. Saved people are the Israel of God. And so when you read something like here, you have to keep that in mind. Like in this verse where it says, I saw the names of the 12 tribes. It's not literally he's reading Dan and Benjamin and Judah and so forth. It's not like that. He's, he's, he's saying, I saw the people of God all represented so that no one was left out. All right. <clears throat> 
Next verse, 13. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Righty tighty, lefty loosey. All right. I'll come back to that. All right, so three gates per wall. Let's talk about that. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Hey, if you're in Sunday morning class, we talked about this in chapter 2, I think a week ago, last week when Frank taught it last, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 or so. When he's describing the church, he's describing it from a builder's mentality. And he says you have this, this spiritual institution that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and the building all fitly framed together grows into a holy temple of the Lord you have these foundations of the apostles and prophets well here that same idea is given to you here it just it says the apostles are the foundations why not apostles and prophets because that's just not how John wanted to write it doesn't matter the point is the picture and the picture is here's the city and its foundation is 12 strong and each one represented by one apostle but wait aren't there 14 apostles it's a metaphor okay it represents the, the chosen, appointed ambassadors, the people who stood as the, the representatives of Christ on earth. They're the foundations of this wall. Incidentally, they're the foundations of the wall, not the city in particular. The wall, what is the point of the wall but to guard the city? Who is the guardian of the church as you read the New Testament? Who defended the church against the liars Ananias and Sapphira? Who struck them down for their, thie- for their lying and their thievery? The apostles, Acts chapter 5. Who defended the church by rebuking Simon the sorcerer when he tried to, the former sorcerer, when he tried to bribe and purchase the power to uh, give miracles away? The apostles, Peter uh, and John with him. Who wrote the majority of the New Testament? The majority of which is all about this is a false doctrine, this is a false doctrine, don't do this or you'll be condemned, don't do that or you'll be condemned. Who defended the church against error in the writing of the New Testament? The apostles. Who's the foundation of the defense of the church? The apostles. That just makes perfect poetic sense. So that's the wall. 15. And John, you have to picture John, is walking up to this in the vision and he's looking at this big, tall structure. And the angel just hands him a giant ruler, and he says, all right, let's measure this bad boy. That's what it says in 15. He handed me, he talked with me, he had a golden reed, he had a golden measuring stick to measure the city, and to measure the gates, and to measure the wall. Three different measurements are going to happen. Verse 16. The city lies four square. Does your Bible say that? Verse 16. Anyone have a different, everyone says four square? Okay, good. The city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he, an- and, sorry, and he, the angel, measured the city with the reed, and it was 12,000, the King James says, furlongs. We'll get to that in a minute. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So what, what does that sound like? What does that look like? If the length of it is, is the same as the, the breadth of it, and it's also the same as the height of it, what you're getting is a big holy cube. Is that what you think of when you think of the song, The City That Lies Four Square? It's a cube, right? It's as tall as it is wide, as it is deep, as it is long. It's just, it's a Rubik's Cube of godliness, right? And in fact, that's exactly the idea because the cube in ancient cultures was considered a symbol of perfection, right? You could turn it any way and it's the same. It's, it's the perfect structure, the perfect design. I guess the ball didn't count. But the cube was the perfect structure, right? Not the pyramid or anything else like that, a perfect cube. So here is the holy city described for you as this perfect structure. It's as tall as it is long, as it is wide, as it is deep. And the whole of it is 12, the King James says 12,000 furlongs, but that's Old English, so I bet you your Bible doesn't say that. The actual measurement is about, a furlong is 200 yards, and I did the math a long time ago, that's about 660 feet, 12,000 of which would be 7,920,000 feet long. And thus the same high, and thus the same deep, and so forth. And that's just, that's just one side. So if you do it squared, I think I wrote down 62,726,000,000. That's a long golden reed. Either that or they had to stop and write and measure. And ca- it's a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a visual. All right? And it's going to get even wackier here in just a second. So just keep that in mind that you're looking at something in the, in the visual that's roughly 8,000 feet long. Okay? If you're seeing it that way. But again, it's a metaphor. 
What's it a metaphor for, by the way? What is it a metaphor? <laughs> what is it for? It's to tell you, look how ginormous it is. Everybody can fit here. There's room enough and to spare. And you know what I love about that so much is the one who built this thing for you came into this world in a stable because there was no room in the inn. So don't you think he knows what a good space does for people? So he recognizes, hey, when I get my house, I'm going to make it big enough. There's not going to be a no vacancy sign like there was at the inn, right? Verse 17. And he measured the wall thereof. It was 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. Which is to say, when the angel measured it, that was the space of the angel's elbow to his middle finger. That's the length of a cubit as it was measured. Which means this angel had, you know, your normal human proportions. It wasn't one of those weird Ezekiel angels with the 58,000 eyes and all kinds of weird pictures. This is just your normal looking dude in a white robe carrying a golden rod. And he's measuring the wall. And how long is the wall? What does it say in verse 17? It's 144 cubits. Now hold on just a tick. Because we just read that this sucker is 7, wait, 7 million. No, not 7 million. What did I say? 7,000? Yeah. 7,000 feet this way and that way. The wall is like 200 feet long. That's, that seems a little weird to me. Let me make sure my math is right, okay? It says it is 144 cubits. That's 144. That measures to 200 feet long. Seems kind of in, 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 inefficient as a wall. Seems a little ineffective. Did I miss something? I'm seeing, I'm seeing whispering. It's what, it's what it says. You're not seeing a literal city, okay? So I don't want you to get there and think, is anyone else nervous about the size of the walls as you're walking in like it's a big long line? It's not what it's about. That's not the point. The point is not the actual measurement. See, you get down in those weeds like that, you start doing math, you start crunching numbers, and you miss the point. Here's the point. Look again at verse 17. We measure the wall 144 cubits. 144. That's the number. Don't worry about what it means. Don't try to break down the math. Don't try to figure out the, the measurement. 144 is 12 12s. The foundation of the walls is what? The 12 apostles. So the foundations are the 12. It is what? It's 12 12s. It's apostles all the way around. That's what it's telling you. The wall is the apostles. The wall of the church is the apostles. That's the point. See, that's how you, that's how you interpret Revelation. That's Revelation. And all these commentaries that spend all this time crunching numbers and trying to figure out links and measurements miss the whole boat entirely, and they're just swimming off the deck and off the deep end. They miss the point. The point is, it's 12 12s. The foundation is 12. The apostles is 12. The wall, the picture, is the apostles. It's just reinforcing the visual, reinforcing the metaphor, okay? I measured the wall. It was 12 12s as the angel measured it. Verse 18. And the building of the wall was jasper. What was the material constructed from? The construction of it was of jasper. The city beyond the wall was pure gold. Gold so pure it was as transparent as glass. Have you ever seen gold that pure? No, you haven't. I don't care how nice you've seen it. You've never seen gold that pure. We go to war and we fight and we quibble and we construct overpriced rings for, for the cheap stuff, for the crummy stuff, for the leftover stuff. God has the finest stuff, and it's concrete. It's the cement he uses to make his walls. That and jasper, the stuff that, you know, you put in the sand and the little rocks and things in your concrete to fill it out a little bit. Well, what is God's filler material in his concrete? Diamonds. Again, it's a picture. It's how beautiful everything is here. Verse 19. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished, the King James says, beautified, decorated with with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was of jasper. The second, sapphire. Remember, there's 12 foundations, so let's count them down. Jasper, sapphire, uh, chalcedony, emerald, verse 20, sardonyx, sardius, chrysoline, uh, chrysolite, uh, beryl, ninth, topaz, um, chrysosporus, jasonith, and amethyst. 12 gemstones. And you may have a little different translation here or there, but here's the breakdown of them, okay? Just in case you're just so crazy you want to know. Here's what they look like. This is what John is seeing. All right, let's get the individuals and then zoom out and see the picture. Individual, jasper, clear like a diamond. Sapphire, bold striking blue. Uh, chalcedony, a shining green. In fact, it's from the word, we get the word copper, which you think copper, copper is like an orange color. No, copper turns green. 
turns a bright shining green when it's oxidized. That's what it looked like. Emerald, soft green. Sardonyx, orangish red. Sardius, a bright red. Chrysolite, a shimmering gold. Beryl, a bright yellow. Topaz, a light blue. Uh, Chrysosporus, a greenish yellow. Jasonith, a deep blue. And Amethyst, a smoky purple. And that's your individuals, but who cares? You zoom out, what do you see? A rainbow. You see every color represented. So if you're approaching the city from far away, and you're going to be, because, well, if you're lost, you're going to be invited in the meantime. Right now, that's the end of the book. The Spirit and the Bride said, come into this holy city. So we're inviting people right now to come into this city. And they're going to come into it, and they're going to come into this building, you know, which is just rocks and, and brick and carpet. But we're inviting them into the church. We're inviting them into a fold of fellowship. And we're inviting them into a place where right now there's persecution and hardship and sorrow. And we're just telling them, yes, but soon he'll wipe away the tears. Soon it'll be beautiful. Soon it'll be great. Soon there'll be no more temptation. So we have to show them this picture so they'll want it now to get the reward later. That's the point of these last two chapters. Look how great it's going to be. And so they're coming into this city, and what do they see? They see the whole spectrum of God, the promise keeper, because that's what the rainbow represents. God's a promise keeper. That's your message to these people. Come into this place. Come into this house of worship. Not this building. Come into the holy spiritual temple of God. Come be persecuted with us. That's your message. You know how hard it is to sell that to people? The more faithful you live, the more you're persecuted. And the more faithful you live, the more you preach. So the more you preach, the more you're persecuted, the more your message is, come be persecuted with me. That's a tough sell, but it's a lot easier when you say, but look how great it's going to be. And you show them God's a promise keeper. And he has said, if you endure, you will get. If you resist, you'll be rewarded. You just keep harping Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So come be persecuted with me, because it's going to be great when we all die. That's the, that's the winning message. If you show them the rainbow. If you show them the 12 stones, the shimmering power of God's promise keeping, he'll keep us into the bargain. He'll be your God. Just be his people. Verse 21. Remember, you have a wall, okay? But there's also 12, you know, there's another wall here. Well, that's not how it works. It doesn't matter. There's 12, three on each side, 12 gates, okay? That's verse 21. 12 gates were 12 pearls, Every, the King James says every several gate was one pearl. Let's just simplify that. Every time I saw a gate, I saw a pearl. And the street beyond the gate was a, of the city was a pure gold as transparent glass. We've already talked about that. So go back to the beginning of that. Every time I saw a gate, I saw 12 pearls. Or I, I saw a pearl. And this is one of those expressions, probably of these two right here in this verse, that everybody knows when they talk about heaven the streets of gold and the pearly gates. That's, that's the, the metaphor for going to heaven. You go to the pearly gates. You notice there's no St. Peter there with like a scroll, you know, checking boxes like a bouncer. That's, that's pure made-up fantasy. But the idea of pearly gates, that's closer to reality of Revelation's picture. Except it's not a gate with a bunch of pearls. Every gate was one pearl. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen a pearl, you know, in a picture. I got five minutes. And it's about that big. Now, maybe they're bigger pearls, you know, maybe that big. But I've never seen a pearl so big that it could be big enough for people to walk through like a door. That's how big this pearl, the gate was a pearl, not full of pearls, not a bunch of pearls put together, not super glued together, but it was just one big pearl from which came, was made the gate. All right, that's a big pearl. Fits right in with that theme of you think you have riches on earth, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Verse 22. So I step in through the gates, and I found no temple. Now I'm going into Jerusalem. You go into old Jerusalem at this time, you expect to see the temple. Well, now I guess the temple's already destroyed. But you, you would, earlier, you'd step in Jerusalem, you would see the temple, you'd see the whole temple courtyard, you'd see the whole shebang, all the people moving around it. It was the epicenter of their society. The temple was the core of their entire civilization. So I'm going into this area, this holy city, this new Jerusalem. I would expect to see the new temple. Where's the new temple? There's no temple. Where's the temple? I saw no temple therein. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Well, where's God? If God is the temple, where's God? He's everywhere. The, the, the city came out of heaven, right? Which means God is bigger than the city. God is the temple. It overshadows, envelops, and has become part of it all. It's all, the whole thing is the temple. Because what is this city? I will dwell with them, and they will dwell with me. We read that at the beginning of this chapter. I will tabernacle with them. I will temple with them, and they will temple with me. Being in this city is to have this fellowship temple. 
See, in the Old Testament, you had to go into a building. You had to go through a veil. And if you're the high priest, go through another veil to get to the presence of God. Well, here, the veil's been ripped down. The other veil's been opened up. You're in, you can go to the presence right now. You bow your head, you say a prayer. You're approaching the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant, right now, Hebrews chapter 4. You approach God's presence right now because right now you're in the church. Right now you're in the city, New Jerusalem. Right now you're in the temple. In fact, your body is its own temple wherein you can offer worship appropriately to God. So he wasn't, I didn't have to look for a place to go worship because everywhere was worship to God. Verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, because the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There's no day-night cycle. I didn't have to look for light to come and light to go and light to fade and light to rise because God's glory gave us the radiance. I don't need to go into too much detail of that. I think we understand the metaphor. 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of God's glory. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Who walks in the light of God? Who walks on the streets of gold? Who entered through the gates of pearl? The nations of them which are saved. So not those cast into fire from previous, but those who didn't get cast away, those who are allowed to enter in, a place where even righteous kings, from lowly servant to righteous king, can walk alongside kings and peasants together and bring glory and honor to God. 25. And the gates of it will not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Obviously, in a physical city, you shut the gates at night because that's when the bad guys come out. So they can't, you can't be seen what you're doing. You go do your evil at night, right? Well, there's no bad guys anymore. They're all burning. That's what we just read. So there's no need to shut the gates. The gates are open all day. We sing that song. Um, the gates will not be shut. It's what I said, right? Verse 25. The gates will not be shut at all by day. There's a song that we sing where the gates swing outward never, right? Okay. Um, I don't understand that lyric because to me, unless I'm just hearing it wrong, I know, I know it says the gates swing outward never, but it ought to be ever. The gates ever swing outward. But I'm almost 99.9% positive in the songbook is the gates swing outward never. Am I right? I think it's never. Okay. But that means the gates are shut all the time, doesn't it? Isn't that what that means? That doesn't make sense because it says the gates are always open. So the gates should swing outward ever, not never. Whatever. What never? Verse 26. What never? No, never. Sorry. Um, that's the HMS Pinafore. Verse 26. And shall bring, as the people are in there, they'll bring their glory and honor of the nations into it. The gates are always open so people can always come in and bring the glory into it. Now, here's where people get messed up. I'm almost done. They go too deep into the metaphor, and they think, wait, I thought all the bad people are away, and all the good people are in it, so who are these people still coming in? You're going too deep in the metaphor. This is a, a text written to people in the here and now who are inviting people into it, and this is your message to them. You're always invited to come in. Yes, there will be a day when there's a day of judgment and a cutting-off period and a separation for all eternity, but in the meantime, here is the rainbow gate. Here's the rainbow wall. Here's the gates of pearl. Come in ever, ever you're invited. You can always enter in, but you can't come in, verse 27, if you defile, if you work abomination, if you make a lie. All those, that's a summary of what we read earlier in the book. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whom the Lamb has said are alive. Who are those people? These people. Those who died and rose. And Jesus wrote their name down and said, they're alive. These people who are still breathing air are dead. And they will stay dead forevermore. Did I finish the chapter? Yes! Mm. Just got my cue. All right. We're done with 21. We'll finish the book, Lord willing, next week. Chapter 22. Thanks, you guys.